Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. This week, we listen back to three award-winning folkways stories from last year. First, we visit a luthier shop, where old musical instruments get new life. I've definitely honed my skills to try to be invisible. Yeah, I don't want anybody to know I was ever there. We also take a ride on the Cass Scenic Railroad and meet the expert crew who keeps its antique trains running. I started when I was 15 years old in shop, and I'm 33 now. And I've left for a couple years, but I always seem to come back. And we learn what draws people from hours away to Floyd, Virginia's weekly Friday night jamboree. This is my first time. I think you've been here. Yeah, I've been to Floyd several times, yeah. And what's kept you coming back? The music. Why are y'all here tonight? The music. The music. (laughs) You'll hear these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Solar Holler, currently helping more than 1,000 Appalachian families and businesses control their energy costs by producing their own solar power. More at solarholler.com. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Since 2019, our Folkways project has produced more than 130 stories about mountain arts and culture. Today, we're revisiting three of those stories, which recently won awards at the Virginia's Associated Press Broadcasters Competition. We begin with the story about luthier Bob Smacula. He's made a career out of fixing old musical instruments so modern musicians can keep playing them. Folkways reporter Zach Harold takes us to a place most people don't get to visit, Inside Smacula's workshop. Hey there. All right. Welcome to the chaos. I love it. (laughs) Walk through the front door of Bob Smacula's workshop, and honestly, it's a lot to take in. Every flat surface is covered in stuff. Chisels, screwdrivers, paintbrushes, a random fork, a bottle of lighter fluid. One whole wall is just wood clamps of various shapes and sizes. But eventually, you're able to look past the jumble, and you begin to notice all the musical instruments in various states of repair. Like this ukulele on Bob's workbench. It's a Martin made in the 1920s, a beautiful instrument and a real collector's piece. But it has problems. For some reason, Martin used mahogany for the tuning pegs, so they're fussy, or extra fussy. These tuners are held in place by friction, like the ones on a violin. Now, that friction has caused one of the brittle mahogany pegs to break. I'm going to replace those with uh, a comparable ebony tuning peg, and that's going to work better for him. He's going to be able to get things in tune uh, a bit better. And that is Bob's style. He could have slapped a set of modern metal geared tuners on this ukulele, and it would have stayed in perfect tune. But it wouldn't have been right for a hundred-year-old instrument like this. So he tries to make repairs that both fix an instrument's problems while also staying true to its history. I've definitely honed my skills to, to, you know, to try to be invisible. Yeah, I don't want anybody to know I was ever there except to go, hey, this plays better than, than they usually do or this sounds better than they usually do. Bob has been honing those invisibility powers for a long time. He's originally from Cleveland, Ohio, where his parents were involved in the folk music scene of the 1960s and 70s. In those days, new acoustic instruments were not very good. They were overbuilt and heavy. So folk musicians tended to seek out older instruments, but those often needed repairs. So Bob's dad, Peter, an engineer by trade, started fixing them. Bob also took an interest in the mechanical side of musical instruments. He had learned how to play his mother's lap dulcimer and wanted one of his own, but he didn't have the money. So he sent away for a build-your-own dulcimer kit. My parents' friends uh, saw the instrument and said, hey, uh, you made that. Could you make me one? And the next thing I knew, I was, you know, 14 and in business making dulcimers for people. Bob and his dad, Peter, eventually joined forces and opened Goose Acres Folk Music Center in Cleveland. They became well-known for buying, selling, building, and repairing folk instruments. 
But instrument repair was a difficult trade to learn in those days. Oh, we were de- we were definitely inventing the wheel. The the, uh, the information uh, age of instrument work just wasn't there. There were a few books out there, and and so I'd grab everything I could in printed sources. But it's not like now where you can find dang near anything you need to know via the internet. Bob learned much of what he knows from the instruments that appeared on his operating table. You know, maybe some a part needed to be replaced. We'd study that and put on something similar. Every builder has their own little quirks or their own little design style. He became so good and his work developed such a reputation that Bob decided to leave Cleveland and the business he started with his dad. He would follow his new bride, Mary. She worked for the U.S. Forest Service in Elkins and moved his operations to West Virginia. Then I decided I can do my work anywhere in the world. It didn't have to be in Cleveland. Anywhere a UPS truck can come, I can, I can uh, fix an instrument and send it back to the owner. Turns out he was right. And in addition to his repair work, Bob also taught instrument repair classes at the nearby Augusta Heritage Center. That's how he found his apprentices, Nate Druckenmiller and Andy Fitzgibbon. Now customers from all over the country ship their banjos, fiddles, mandolins, and guitars to this little shop in the woods, where Bob, Andy, and Nate get them singing again. Like this banjo from 1887. You know, made by a, a talented woodworker who maybe banjos wasn't his, his main thing, but uh, it's, it's really interesting, really. This instrument is on Andy's bench. He's worked for Bob for over 20 years, and he's the shop's banjo guy. So you see a lot of unique, one-off, home-built ones like this, uh, you know, very, very in quality, anywhere from really crude to really nice. And this one is a really nice one. And you can see, you know, you can look at it and see somebody played it a lot to where it put all this wear in it. So it has a lot of... Uh, a lot of history that way, too, and it is fun to be able to get them back up and running again. But as nice as it is, there are some things about this old banjo that just don't live up to modern standards. The frets, for instance. Builders nowadays know that frets need to be precisely placed, like down to hundredths of an inch, for an instrument to play in tune. The frets on this 1887 banjo weren't placed with nearly that kind of precision. Now, since this banjo is more of a collector's piece, Andy's going to keep that wonky fret job. At this point, you kind of have to balance playability with with the historical aspect of it. But the balance might tip in the other direction if, say, that instrument was going to be played on stage, or if the original construction method had somehow compromised the banjo's structural integrity. In those cases, Andy might have to apply just a bit more modern know-how, like he did with Bob's own 1903 Fairbanks banjo. Bob's uncle got it in a bar in Newton Center, Massachusetts. He goes in one day and he sees this banjo in the corner. He said, hey, Tom, what's with the banjo? And uh, Tom says, ah, somebody used it to pay a bar tab. You want it? You can have it. So it had a lot of sentimental value, but it wasn't a great player. You know, all the time that I've had it, I always thought, it just there's something missing. There's something that needs to be, you know, done to make this, the, you know, the, the best playing banjo for me. It turns out the fingerboard was made from ebonized hardwood. That's a technique where woodworkers imitate the look of ebony by creating a chemical reaction in the wood's natural acids. And the acid dyes that they used 120 years ago uh, causes slow degradation to the wood cell structure. And without it being a good solid piece of wood, well, it would just you know, bend ever so slightly and, and make it harder to play. After years of working on instruments just like this, Bob and Andy decided to rip out the old fingerboard and replace it with real ebony. They replaced the wood on the peghead with a special kind of poplar. It matches the color of old ebonized wood, but it's more stable. And this banjo went from, from uh, you know, one of my favorite, you know, or my favorite family heirloom to my favorite banjo to play. But I like it 
for the little bit of fingerstyle banjo playing I do too. Bob had been playing this banjo for nearly 40 years before making that repair. So why the delay? Well, the instrument really belonged to his dad. It didn't pass into Bob's possession until Peter's death in 2008. But really, that worked out perfectly. By the time it was actually his, Bob had all those years of experience and knew exactly how to fix it. He doesn't make his customers wait quite that long for repairs, of course. Some take only hours. A severe case might take six months. You've just got to find a place on his very long wait list. That's why when I was saying my goodbyes to everybody at the shop, that Bob made a request. When you're airing this, you know, I want to make sure you, you don't like give away or tell anybody my exact location, but say, you know, north of Elkins. I said I noticed he only had a P.O. box on his website. Was he worried someone would break in and make off with somebody's vintage guitar? No. It turns out Bob is worried about something far more precious. You see how busy we are. If I did have my address, people would just stop by. Oh, just wanted to see what you have. It's like, I have no time. <laughs> you know, I've got no... Yeah, I've got... Uh, I've got uh... Bob has worked for a long time to be invisible. Let's not ruin that for him. From an undisclosed location somewhere north of Elkins, West Virginia, I'm Zach Harold for Inside Appalachia. Gonna lay down my old guitar Gonna lay down my old guitar Oh, I wish I could tie it to my side and take it along with me That story by Zach Harold won first place in the Mountain State Heritage category of the Virginia's AP Broadcasters Competition. And it's the third year in a row he's won the award. This next story is from the Folkways Project, too. It shows the importance of generational learning. One of the people you'll hear is Cass Scenic Railroad senior employee Rex Castle. Castle passed away during the making of this story. But during his life, he was a crucial part of why visiting the Cass Railroad in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, feels like you're stepping back in time. Last year, Folkways reporter Lauren Griffin visited Cass and brought us this story. This is the sound of a 1920s Heisler No. 6 locomotive known here as the Durban Rocket. Eager tourists lean out from the open-air coaches as the train departs and begins its journey into the mountains of Pocahontas County, West Virginia. It's a hot summer day, but not hot enough to keep Kentaro Okuni and his family away. Uh, because uh, my son uh, loves, uh, uh, especially for the steam train. Yeah, so this is the uh, second, second trip <laughs> to visit uh, here. Okuni traveled from his home in the suburbs of DC with his wife Hiroi and his young son Takenojo to see the impressive Shea steam trains run. Many visitors I spoke to on the train were not from West Virginia. In the years before the pandemic, it was fairly common for folks to travel to the small town of Cass from all over the world. Riding the train at Cass is a niche experience, one that wouldn't be possible without a committed group of experts who fix and operate the trains. One of those people is Rex Castle. He's the shop foreman down at the Cass repair shop. Working on these old shades is something that's unique and different from any job you ever had. Castle has been working on these locomotives for about 30 years. Like a lot of other engineers, hostlers, and machinists, Castle is the third generation in his family to work on these locomotives. Well, my granddad worked for the CNO. He walked me on the railroad all the time. He would show me things. Of course, I was a, a boy and, you know, not understanding, but I did pay attention. But uh, then my dad worked here. He, and, uh, he got me in. He'd bring me up here as a, a little kid. He hustled. I would lay in the floor of the locomotive and he would cover me up with an old greasy rag that was in there. <laughs> and I'll never forget, you know, I'd wake up and he'd be shoving coal over top of me into the fire box and then I'd go right back to sleep. <laughs> 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 of 
But yeah, I mean, that's, I've been around them all my biggest part of my life. The other guys in the crew refer to Castle as a wealth of knowledge due to his experience in the field. He's also approaching retirement. Yeah, as of um, of the crew we have right now, I'm probably the oldest that's left here. The old timer, as they would call. <laughs> like I say, we've got some younger guys that's coming up. Uh, I mean, I'm not going to be here forever. I'm hopefully two more years. But, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I want to show them what I know, what the... Uh, what I called old timers before me, handed down to me. So. That's one of the unique and challenging aspects of the job. The locomotives running out of cast were built in the early 1900s, all the way to the 1950s and 60s. The knowledge on how to repair and run these locomotives is specific to the local terrain and mostly handed down through hands-on learning. When you run up here on our railroad, we probably average 6 to 8% grades on all the way 11 miles to Ball Knob and back. It's the only way you can learn how to do it is get in them with the engineer to show you and, and uh, to learn it hands-on. <laughs> There's no book out there that, that will tell you how to do this. One of the members of the younger generation is Dervin Lambert. Like Castle, Lambert grew up around these trains. His grandfather also worked at the cast repair shop as a machinist. I started when I was 15 years old in the shop, and then I'm 33 now. So, And I've left for a couple years, but I always seem to come back. I want to live here. This is where I choose to live. So, I, you know, this is the job that I enjoy doing for the area. So I'm hands-on and I don't mind getting dirty and, you know, hot. It's aggravating sometimes. But at the end of the day, it's a good job. So The job is not just running tourist trains. It's also running freight. The freight trains haul a variety of goods with modern locomotives. But it's the antique steam trains that require more effort. And the job is not for everyone, even people who thought they wanted to work on trains. Rex Castle has seen his fair share of people come and go. I didn't like the, the dirt, the soot, the smoke, uh, the oil. You're gonna, your clothes is going to stay stained. Uh, you go out here, you're black some, most days. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a dirty job. It's, it's not a job for somebody who wants to stay clean. And they're hot. They are terrible hot. The hot, sunny season, I mean, like today where it's probably 80 out there, these locomotives probably average anywhere between 130, 150 degrees. It's hot enough on the engineer sitting there. You can't get out of it. And the fireman, he's shoveling for a ton of coal So in that heat. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's a hard job. It's important for the railroad company to find committed folks who can handle the dirty, hot work. But the population here is shrinking, and the field is primarily dominated by workers who are men. So the railroad has expanded their employee search pool beyond the region. One person who doesn't mind the rough conditions is Matthew Hooser. He's one of the newest recruits, along with his friend Brown Culp. Well, long story short, uh, both of us volunteered at the North Carolina Transportation Museum in Spencer, North Carolina. That's both how we both kind of got started into this career, I guess you could say. And... One year, we decided to kind of make a father-son trip. Uh, his dad and my dad, we paired together, came up and rode cast a couple years ago. We really enjoyed it. Ever since then, I guess you could say we kind of fantasized on, hey, it'd be great to kind of work up there. It seems like, you know, all the steam engines and everything like that, that'd be take our passion and take it to another level. Hooser is the engineer for the morning ride on the Durban rocket. As an engineer, Hooser is responsible for running the engine keeping it lubricated, watching the track for obstacles, coordinating with the train conductor, and helping the trip run as smoothly as possible. His friend Culp is a fireman, which means he fuels and maintains the fire in the locomotive during trips. People like Hooser and Culp are important for the future of the trains in Cass. Hopefully, you know, the younger generation we've got coming up here will keep them going for generations to come. If we can still afford to run them. <laughs> It's getting to where it's starting to really be hard. With industry costs rising, CAS employees worry that increasing ticket prices in response might push tourists away. John Smith is the CEO and founder of the Durban and Greenbrier Valley Railroad. He controls the finances. Our ticket price is still probably on the lower end of some of the other railroads around the country. But we're not in the middle of a, um, 
uh, metropolitan area or near one even. So everybody, everybody comes here has to drive here to get here. So it's kind of an expensive thing to do more than just uh, drive 20 miles to go to a zoo or something. The biggest question mark is, are we going to have the base of customers that we had before? But there's an element to cast that keeps drawing folks back, whether to work or to visit. Just riding a train, I don't know what it is, especially if you're in like one of those air-conditioned cars whipping down the tracks over on the central. It's pretty cool. Um, even the ride here, with all the noise and everything else, it, it's like almost um, musical. It has, a, it has that kind of uh, effect on you. So when you hear a steam whistle a mile away, there's no one wouldn't say that's one of the coolest things I've ever heard. Which is why for now, the trains are still running and drawing people to Cass, West Virginia. With Inside Appalachia, I'm Lauren Griffin. Lauren's story won second prize in the Mountain State Heritage category of the Virginia's AP Broadcasters Competition. The category recognizes excellence in stories about the heritage, history, culture, and natural attributes of West Virginia. Congratulations, Lauren, for the award, and thank you for your reporting. By the way, if you want to see photos of the antique trains at Cass and the crew who keeps them running, visit our website, wvpublic.org. Also, thanks to Walter Scriptunas for his help with that story. Coming up, we learn what brings people every week to a tiny one-stop light town on the Blue Ridge Plateau. Well, you know, just coming up here, it's like, wow, it's like everything revolves around the music. You know, it seems like where we're from, music kind of, you know, you fit it in with your life. Around here, music is life. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, offering 31 bachelor-level degrees and six master-level degrees for students of any age. More information at concord.edu. Our next story is about the community where I live, Floyd, Virginia. It's a sprawling county of about 15,000 people on the Blue Ridge Plateau. Caddy Corner to Roanoke and Blacksburg. There's one stoplight in the county, and it's in the town of Floyd, a tiny little place home to about 500 year-round residents. Except on Friday nights. The town's population doubles, triples, or more from people traveling up the steep slopes of the Blue Ridge to come to Floyd's Friday night jamboree. Every week, you find people from all walks of life Different places, different politics, different ages, coming together at the Floyd Country Store to sing, dance, play music, listen to it, and just take everything in. In the summer, music spills from the main stage and dance floor in the Floyd Country Store out onto the sidewalk. And that's where I first saw Chad Ritchie and Robbie Harmon. I'm going to Western Country now, Susan Anna. Chad's on the fiddle, and Robbie's playing banjo. They traveled up two hours from Wilkesboro, North Carolina. This is my first time. I think you've been here. Yeah, I've been to Floyd several times, yeah. And what's kept you coming back? The music. Why are y'all here tonight? The music. The music. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, just coming up here, it's like, wow, it's like everything revolves around the music. You know, it seems like where we're from, music kind of, you know, you fit it in with your life. Around here, music is life. The main event each Friday is the jamboree that takes place inside the Floyd Country Store. But there's a whole scene. Here's David Easterly, one of the greeters inside the jamboree. We have the uh, the gospel band, 6.30 to 7.30, dance band, 7.30 to 10. Come in here, go outside, people dance in here, dance outside. Inside or outside, you find all kinds of folks. Locals, like Curtis Newell, who lives nearby and has a reserved seat. We've got a lot of friends here. It's been coming for 20 or 30 years. 
And, you know, you come every week basically a lot to see them. Or Tracy Elliott, who began driving 226 miles here with her husband weekly after they found out about it on the Internet. We had uh, never heard this type of music. We had never danced a day in our life, and now we dance every week. Or a music school graduate from South Carolina who, along with her husband, traveled up on a church friend's recommendation. I'm just here to take it all in. This isn't really the genre that I'm most familiar with. You know, I do opera professionally, um, so it's a bit of a change. But I'm really excited, especially for the gospel set. Get in line, brother, if you want to go Now, Floyd County is a politically red county. Republicans pretty reliably win about two-thirds of the vote each year. But at the Jamboree, you find people of all political persuasions, dancing, singing, and playing music together. Kirsten Griffiths says that's one thing she likes about the Jamboree. It's diversity of all kinds. It is funny because, you know, some of us have some agreements. We kind of can pleasantly tease each other politically because we are going to be on complete and utter opposite ends of the spectrum, but we will dance together most of the time. (laughs) I heard from people time and again about how friendly the dance floor is. Like Maggie from down the mountain in Franklin County. It doesn't matter if you know somebody's name or not. They're just, everybody is really encouraging. And it's the kind of place where when you come and you want to try something new, you don't really feel that shy to do it. If you're dancing, you're doing better than anyone who's not. Floyd local and Jamboree regular Roger Dickerson still remembers the first time he went up on the dance floor. I've always loved bluegrass, but I didn't know how to dance. And I come up here one, one Friday night, and a girl from Bassett come up here and jerked me out of the seat, and she said, you're going to learn how to dance. And I said, you let go of my hand, I'm running back to my seat. It scared me to death, because I'm all, I'm all feet. And she showed me how to flat foot, and I've been doing it ever since. And I tell people all the time, I said, you come to dance? And they said, no, we're just curious. We want to hear the music. I said, the music is good, but I said, when you get out on that floor, it's another world. One of the first music circles that got going outside was made up of kids. They're just learning how to play fiddles, banjos, and guitars at the country store's handmade music school. College student Sophie Meckel, who's been teaching the youth class, leads them through a rendition of Short and Bread. Moms and dads sit around the perimeter, visiting, listening to the music, smiling and clapping. Morgan Grimm is one of those moms. She praises Floyd's music community for being so welcoming. Even these kids you're watching now, some of them are strumming for the first time, but there's an invitation of coming being part of this music community. The kids have been part of the Friday Night Jamboree since it first started. And some of them who started coming way back then have grown into adults who still come now, like Chris Perlman, who lives just down the mountain in Farron, Virginia. You know, when I was just a boy, I'd come here, and they play music over at the, at the fire department, too. Okay, yep. And I'd go from there to here, from there to here. I'd run backwards and forwards, you know, I was just a chap, you know, and I'd run from there to here. And... Floyd's Friday Night Jamboree officially started in the mid-'80s, when Freeman Cochran started keeping his general store open Friday evenings for people who wanted to play and hear string band music. Since then, the business has changed hands several times. But each new owner, five of them now, has kept the jamboree going. Dylan Locke and Heather Krantz are the current owners. They bought it eight years ago. But they don't see themselves as owners so much as stewards. Here's Krantz. It's never belonged to us. It's not something that I think belongs to anyone. You know, it belongs to this community and it belongs to the people that show up. On the night I'm there, Krantz is out there, playing in the circle along with the kids from the Handmade Music School. She says their job keeping the jamboree going requires, well, playing right along with everyone else who's part of it. You have to listen or else it doesn't work, right? And same with playing music. If you're playing in a jam or something, like you, ha- you have to be listening to the other people around you. 
Cranston Lock are doing more besides just keeping the Jamboree going each Friday. They've grown their music schedule to include events on Thursdays, Saturdays, and Sundays, too. Sometimes they host a big national act at the store. Bela Fleck, Killian Welch, and Floyd's own Morgan Wade have all played here. They're also honoring the past with a bluegrass distribution business and an attempt to document the region's musical history through a program called Music in the Mountains. And the Handmade Music School is paying it forward and building the next generation of musicians. All that contributes to the Friday Night Jamboree. It takes work and intention to build community. And when it's done right, it can attract people from around the world. Well, we're Chris and Fiona. Last year we set out from Europe to come across the Atlantic on our sailing boat and uh, spent the winter in the Caribbean and then have, uh, came up to Chesapeake uh, about two months ago and then we decided to explore inland a bit. Uh, we wanted to see some bluegrass music, so here we are. If you came from an awfully long, we know we got North Carolina, we got Arkansas, so we already know some folks traveled a good long way to be here with us. At intermission during the Jamboree, Dylan Locke always comes out does a raffle, and awards a Floyd Country Store baseball cap to whoever came from farthest away. Um, so if you think you traveled farther away, then yell it out, please. England. England? All right, well, there we go. That's farther away than Arkansas, Amanda. So England's from farthest away, so we'll get you all up here in just a minute. Anybody from pretty far away and want to yell it out and love where you're from and want to tell us that? West Palm Beach. West Palm Beach, Maryland. Kenya. Kenya. That's pretty far away. So tell us your name and what brings you here from Kenya. My name is Nyambura and um, I got married uh, to, to Eric, so that's why I'm here. We drove from Virginia, so um, technically I shouldn't be getting the hat because we drove from Woodbridge, but I am from Kenya, so I still think you should go to the people from England. Give it to them. Well, hey, that was very generous of you, and it was really nice to meet you, yeah. And, and congratulations. After the jamboree, I caught up with Nambora Kiari and asked what brought her to Floyd. Turns out, she and Eric found it in a guidebook. And there's another reason. Growing up in Kenya, we listened to a lot of country music, but the old school country music, like Don Williams and uh, Dolly Patron, and the country music that I listened to growing up sounds so much like bluegrass music. So when I listen to bluegrass music, it reminds me of home. And that's the true magic of the Friday Night Jamboree. It doesn't matter if you're from Floyd, from England or from Kenya, if you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're two or 92, it just feels like home. That story won Best Light Feature at the Virginia's AP Broadcasters Competition. I was lucky enough to capture a memorable night at the Floyd Country Store, but my editor Kelly Libby deserves credit too. Thank you for your edits, Kelly. And while we're talking about awards, Remember the kids with the Handmade Music School playing short and bread? Several won first and second place at the Tommy Gerald Youth Old Time Competition in Mount Airy, North Carolina. Congratulations to our local young musicians. From WVXU in Cincinnati, a river advocacy group is warning the Ohio River is the second most endangered in the nation. The Ohio River flows along the border of six states, including Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky. American Rivers says the waterway faces danger from climate change and pollution. Senior Vice President for Conservation Heather Taylor Measley says the designation is meant to draw stakeholders, 
like industry, transportation, and conservationists together. The Ohio River has been working for our country uh, since it was founded and well, 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 well before. <laughs> you know, it's high time that that we start to come together and take a look at its management in an inclusive way that's really thoughtful of the people and the culture that are on its banks. Taylor Measley says the Ohio River doesn't have federal designation as a protected waterway. She says that such a listing would open it up to more regulation and funding for things such as better water quality monitoring. A new book looks at the deadly Denora smog, an environmental disaster that happened in western Pennsylvania 75 years ago. Its effects still linger today. Carol Holsoppel with the Allegheny Front has this. Denora Death Fog chronicles the events that led to the 1948 smog that sickened thousands and killed 21 people, according to author Andy McPhee. He writes that the small town of Denora, Pennsylvania, was founded at the turn of the 20th century expressly to make steel and zinc. Fog wasn't unusual in the town, built along a horseshoe curve in the Monongahela River, south of Pittsburgh. But I asked McPhee what made it deadly. The temperature inversion, temperature inversions, we're accustomed to those. We have those in the fall. It's when a layer of warm air sits over a layer of cool air closer to the ground. Normally that blows off. The sun heats the air and the cool air rises up and the fog blows off. Well, that didn't happen here for a couple of reasons. One, the fog was very thick to begin with because of all the smoke from the mills. But secondly, there was no wind. There was hardly a breath of fresh air anywhere in the entire region, from Virginia all the way up to New York, because the mills kept pumping out effluents, and those effluents contained a wide variety of what we know now are deadly chemicals. That lid kept all of those chemicals in the air. Once that six days of smog hit, it's like just breathing in the chemicals through a gas mask. It's basically what it was. The fog formed on a Tuesday. It settled down in Denora on Wednesday, and people went about their business. When did people start to realize that this wasn't a typical fog event that they were kind of used to? The physicians began to become aware. The firefighters began to become aware. But the regular people, it was a fog, and they've been living through fogs for years. What's the big deal? So they just went about their daily lives. They had a Halloween parade. They had the Smog Bowl, which is was a big game between Monongahela and Denora. Big football game. And hundreds of people went to the game at the top of the hill in Denora. The people who died were all over 50 years old, many over 60. Many of the people who died were immigrants who had already retired from the industries that they came here to work for. How did their age and their health play into the story about the smog? The most common myth, I think, and certainly is a rationalization of a number of residents that I spoke with, the rationalization was, well, these were sickly people anyway. Uh, and they're really all older. Well, 55 is one of the youngest ones. They're 52. They're not that old. They had had a hard life because of where they worked in the mills, but these these were not aged people. Once you get up in the 60s and 70s at that time, now we got a, a different ballgame. Now you have heart issues hitting people. But they've been breathing the smoke for so long, so that was part of it, absolutely. But there were other people who had not been sick. It's an individual thing how people respond to pollutants and these toxins. And we've know, we know way more about that now than we used to. There was also a denial of the root cause. They didn't blame the mills. Some of them absolutely did and held a grudge until the, the last days of their life. And their sons and daughters hold grudges as well. But many of them never faulted the mills because that was their livelihood. That was how they survived. Andy McPhee is the author of the new book, Denora Death Fog, Clean Air and the Tragedy of a Pennsylvania Mill Town from the University of Pittsburgh Press. There's more at AlleghenyFront.org. I'm Carol Holsoppel. The Allegheny Front is based in Pittsburgh and reports on regional environmental news.
on fire, baby You can turn it into center and smoke Cause the house is mighty cold And I feel like Melting all the snow away The U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration recently issued an alert warning of a sharp increase in the trafficking of fentanyl mixed with xylazine, also known as Trank. Emily Rice of West Virginia Public Broadcasting has more. Appalachia's ever-present and ever-evolving opioid epidemic has a new cutting agent on the block. Xylazine, a sedative medication meant for veterinary use, is being mixed into illicit supplies of opioids and fentanyl. Xylazine is a non-opioid agent linked to a growing number of overdose deaths across the country. As a non-opioid, the drug poses a threat to humans in part because it does not respond to typical revival methods like Narcan. Lee Brooks is the medical director of the Medically Assisted Treatment Program at Bluestone Primary Care in Princeton, West Virginia. She said she has seen positive xylazine tests in her patients since August of 2022 noting that she never sees xylazine without fentanyl also present. And when I talked to the patient about about it, you know, she had no idea what she ingested was xylazine. So that kind of sparked my um, interest as far as, you know, well, if one patient's got it, I'm probably going to have you know, multiple patients. Brooks said her biggest worry is how to educate her patients to handle the side effects of xylazine given its resistance to Narcan. It creates a longer lasting high when people do ingest it with fentanyl. Um, even though we don't think that they're actually going out on the street saying, I want xylazine. Um, on the street, it's kind of called trank dope. What is happening is it's, it's just being cut with some of these um, illicit drugs. So, um, People don't really know that they're ingesting them. Joshua Schrecker is the Senior Director of Clinical Affairs at Aegis Sciences Corporation, a toxicology and medication monitoring laboratory that has been tracking the use of xylazine for years. We had the prescription opioid epidemic, and then it became the illicitly manufactured fentanyl epidemic. And now we're seeing adulteration of uh, illicit opioids, traditional illicit substances like cocaine, um, with sort of a, a hodgepodge or a mixing of drugs. Um, kind of at its, thinking about it at its foundation, the reason that these substances are oftentimes added to other drugs is they have somewhat similar effects on the end user. Some who obtain the mixture think they've purchased an opioid and are surprised to wake hours later, craving the opioid high more than ever. The drug has also been shown to cause large open wounds when used by humans, sometimes leading to amputation. We do know that some of the side effects that happens is like dry mouth, they get drowsy at first, an increase in blood pressure and increase in heart rate. But then heart rate lowers, blood sugar goes up, patients develop hypothermia, and then they go into respiratory distress. And also at the injection sites, they can get necrotic tissue. Necrotic tissue means dead body tissues. Xylazine kills the tissue where the drug was injected. Where it's not, you know, a human drug, it's not was never designed for human use. It's not on the controlled substance list because it's a veterinary medicine, um, and that's another uh, reason why it's it's kind of like appealing for the illicit market to use xylazine in uh, a mixture is because the fact that it's not um, controlled, it's you know, lower cost, but also lower risk of law enforcement scrutiny. Federal lawmakers recently introduced the Combating Illicit Xylazine Act to classify the drug as a controlled substance, among other measures. You know, prescription drugs very much stay the same over time. You know, there may be a, a one or two new drugs that are approved um, that we'll begin testing for, but within the kind of subset of these novel and synthetic illicitly manufactured compounds, uh, they shift and move all the time. Um, you know, when a drug is either internationally or nationally scheduled, the pattern that we typically see is that scheduling occurs, that positivity will drop off and it becomes replaced with a new substance that's, you know, very similar or acts in a similar manner. While most experts agree scheduling the drug as a controlled substance is the next step, researchers, scientists, and physicians alike brace for the next new filler agent to emerge on the illicit market. No matter what they take off the street, what drug task force take off the street, how they re-schedule um, different medications, that illicit market is so financially driven from like the cartels 
and um, other illegal activity, that they bounce back with something that's bigger, stronger, faster. For Appalachia Health News, I'm Emily Rice in Charleston. Appalachia Health News is a project of West Virginia Public Broadcasting with support from Charleston Area Medical Center and Marshall Health. West Virginia recently became the 17th state in the nation to pass the Student Journalist Press Freedom Protection Act, which helps protect student journalists from censorship. Kentucky lawmakers introduced a similar bill, but it died during the legislative session. Michaela Wheeler is the student news director at Marshall University campus radio station WMUL, and Chuck Bailey is the faculty advisor there. WVPB news director Eric Douglas spoke with Bailey and Wheeler about how the new law will affect their work. Was this something that weighed on you? I mean, was this something that in the back of your mind you you were concerned about up until this? Did it actually affect your day-to-day decisions about broadcasting? The answer on the on the broad scope is no. Administrations change, and administrations' understanding of journalism change widely based on their interactions and their perceived uh, pressures they get from boards of governors, the community, if something is done that they do not like. Uh, but uh, routinely, no. That I think the administrations at most higher ed institutions realize they deal with journalists all the time. They can't control the message. Tell me about some of the issues that you think you've covered that that might have come to the attention of, of the administration? Well, I mean, one of my reporters covered when we had protests going on on campus over the potential abortion ban at the time. We had some pretty heated protests happening on campus, and that could have very easily been a point in time where the administration had stepped in and be like, you know, we don't really want to make our press look bad. Let's kind of watch what we're, we're putting out there. But it wasn't. Um, My reporters were able to go out and they were able to cover these protests and interview whoever they wanted with no pushback. Um, And that happens pretty much any time. I wouldn't say that we have a whole lot of issues on campus where it's something that the potentially the administration feels like they would need to step in because they're worried about bad press. But even in times that we have had things that may be a little bit iffy, (laughs) like even covering like the campus politics, people that are running, um, our debates for student government, those can get pretty intense. Um, Those are very easily points in times where the administration could step in and they could say something about it, Um, but they don't. Um, They kind of respect the work that we're doing and they trust that we're going to be unbiased in what we're releasing um, and just reporting on what's happening. I know, but that, that's actually really cool to hear, really, really gratifying to hear that that the administration is, and, and administrations uh, for the last 30 years plus have, have mostly taken a hands-off attitude, which is what you want to hear with student journalists. I mean, that's the point of the professional advisors in the first place. I was just thinking there was one uh, instance where we did truly cooperate with the administration. One of those clickbait stories, you know, the most unsafe campus, you know, that type things. And one got out with Marshall being just really wretched. There was no sources or anything to it. It was just a claim. I asked Mac to contact the university administration to get some feedback, and I'll let her tell you about that, because we didn't want to run something that absolutely had zero credibility. A lot of the time I do get redirected to their communications department, depending on where I contact on campus. I don't always get the the go ahead to talk to the higher ups. Um, Sometimes I do just because I'm a little bit pushy. (laughs) But most of the time we talk to the communications department and they had actually already done their research on this, trying to, you know, backtrack and cover just in case of the press. We do have to do our research in those circumstances, but obviously as a news director, I'm not going to run something that I'm not 100% positive of and I don't have the research of. And that's the one thing we're lucky about here is not only do they trust that we're going to be doing that, um, but sometimes they do kind of leak into the territory of either they trust us enough that they think that they can be comfortable enough to tell us a little more than they usually would. Um, 
or that it becomes kind of businessy and you have to worry about that interdepartment uh, relationship if they're going to work with you in the future. So that it was good to have that line of communication that they were at least willing to respond in some circumstance. I, I I guess I'm grateful that this this law passed in West Virginia. And West Virginia is actually one of the first 17 in the country to pass this law, but it doesn't sound like it at least is overwhelmingly needed. Uh, it, it's good to have as a backup, but it's not it's not been a pressing issue. It's good that it takes it off the plate because Eric, a lot of administrators think the advisor should have prior restraint. You should go in and say, don't do this. You know, if Michaela has a question and wants to ask me, I will give her my advice, but I'm not going to tell her to or not to do that. And the administration thinks you should. I think this will have more impact on on high school journalism teachers, and I believe they need it. I think there will be instances in higher ed where somebody will need this protection, and it will probably be a new advisor, more so than than a veteran advisor. That was Chuck Bailey and Michaela Wheeler speaking with Eric Douglas about the Student Journalist Press Freedom Protection Act. Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Marisa Anderson, Tyler Childers, The Wayfarers, and The Appalachian Roadshow. Bill Lynch is our producer. Our executive producer is Eric Douglas. Kelly Libby is our editor. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce this episode. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter, at InAppalachia. You can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at WVPublic.org. Visit WVPublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to subscribe or stream all of our stories. Or look for Inside Appalachia on your favorite podcast app. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University, focusing on students' futures. Classes available at concord.edu apply.